Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, each one of you has one of these little sheets in front of you, and we're actually going to be reading from here, so it makes life easy today. And we will be starting with the green side. We're going to encounter the word Selah twice at the beginning of this reading, and at those times we're going to pause for a minute, and I would invite you to take that time to just remind yourself to allow these words to move from your head to your heart. Psalm 4. To the choir master with string instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 5. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What if there was one thing in your day that if you were to change it, would change everything else? 
It kind of sounds like the beginning of some cheesy infomercial, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I couldn't help myself. And earlier this year, I was reading a fascinating book, a book which made it to be one of the best books of the year, dubbed by the Wall Street Journal, a book that's made it on multiple occasions on the New York Times bestseller list. Its title is The Power of Habit. And its author, Charles Duhigg, digs into some of, Duhigg digs, there you go, (laughs) digs into some of the most recent neurological research and sociological studies to answer the age-old question, how do people change? How do people change? His answer, his conclusions, is that life is made up of a series of habits. A series of habits. The brain, it creates these neural pathways, these patterns that our subconscious naturally goes through without even realizing it doing the things of our day. For example, let's say you're driving home from work, a route you've maybe taken hundreds of times if you've been around at all at your job for a while, and you get immersed in an argument you had earlier that day with one of your coworkers. You're thinking through all the details on how you would have pounded them you know, if you had your wits about you and how you would have come out the victor. Um, Or maybe you're lost in talk radio and the conversation that's happening there and then suddenly you're home. What happens? It's almost like the last 15 minutes of driving didn't exist. Did I stop at that stop sign? You know, I don't remember and it's terrifying. What happens is your body goes into autopilot and goes down that familiar path and so frees up mental energy for you to focus on other activities in your day. Your brain does this for a whole host of actions. And without even realizing it, we're just doing stuff. Good habits and bad habits because it's what we've always done. And change? Change comes primarily in the change of habits, rhythms, ruts, whatever you want to call them. Now, Duhigg, he dives a little bit deeper. He's not satisfied with that answer. He goes a little bit further and comes to discover that there are certain habits, certain ruts, certain rhythms in our lives that if we were to change them, if we were to tweak them, if we were to insert them into our calendar, they wouldn't merely just change a couple hours in our day. It would change the trajectory of our lives. He calls these keystone habits, keystone habits. And what we find with these particular kinds of habits is that they'll change the way you think about your work, the very work you do, the way you parent, the way you engage friends, your community, the way you engage God. Now, for me, I'm a rut person. (laughs) So this was like music to my ears and understanding my own personal makeup. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure you're a rut person. I get it. Hold that thought. And while you're holding that thought, I want to ask you a different question. How many of you here this morning feel busy? Now, come on. I think that's almost all of us, isn't it, right? Even if our schedules don't look hectic, the chaos that's going on inside here makes it very difficult to close our eyes at night, doesn't it? And as much and as hard as we may try, we can't seem to slow down. You know, even as I talk about rest and slowing down, I feel like I'm in a refugee camp describing a grocery store, and we're all starting to salivate. Look, I'm right there with you. My wife and I, we just had our second kid. So yeah, busyness and rest are always at war with one another. And far too often, busyness wins the battle of the day. And then here's the kicker. (laughs) Busyness doesn't go away. Actually, we lie to ourselves way too often and say, this is just a season of life. When the older we get, the more influence we gain, the more responsibility we're given. And to our surprise, the busier we become. 
And we thought we were busier back then, but busyness is still the law of the land for our lives. So can we know rest in busyness? Can we have chaos all around us and still find peace? It's a good question. It's an honest question. It's a scary question if you're anything like me. And, and as we even think about all of this topic, I want to start by answering it by bringing these two ideas together. The restlessness that we feel in our lives, as well as this recent neurological research and sociological studies that Duhigg has brought to the popular level in his book, The Power of Habit. You see, the psalmist had it right so long ago, and these recent research and studies are finally catching up to what he was saying in Psalm 4 and 5. Here's the deal. If you want rest, dig a better rut. If you want rest, dig a better rut, because rest is, here we go, a habit, a habit. It's more than just changing your schedule because who has the power over your schedule anymore? Nine times out of 10, it isn't you. It's your boss. It's your friends who say, hey, we've got to go do this happy hour thing now. Fine. You know, maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. What have you? But we have all of these competing responsibilities. And really, at the end of the day, rest is a change of heart, a change of heart. Now, that seems a little scary to say off the top of our head. And many of you are thinking, I've been here the past two weeks and I thought we were in a series on prayer. This feels a little bit like a bait and switch. Well, you're kind of right and you're kind of wrong. And here's why. Rest and prayer are intimately connected. You can't have rest without prayer. You can't have rest without prayer. In other words, if you want rest, dig a better rut. And why not dig a rut of the heart? You see, Psalm 4 and 5, it gives us the blueprint to now dig this rut, to enter an ancient rhythm, to make an abiding habit that Christians have been making for over two millennia. And it's an evening prayer and morning prayer we begin learning prayer. It's an evening prayer and morning prayer we begin learning prayer and have the opportunity to experience rest. Now, If you're anything like me, the first response is, nobody got time for that, right? Come on. I don't have time to pray once, let alone now you're saying there's two components to my day. What gives? Well, we're going to address that here shortly. But first, let me say, as we dive, before we get to that answer, you're not too busy for this rut. Secondly, some of you may be thinking, Gabe, I'm not a rut person. When you asked that question earlier, I know that's not me. I'm a free spirit. Well, hear this. Every bit of neurology, sociology, and theology points otherwise. The difference is you probably just don't know your ruts. (laughs) And this particular rut is one that your soul is crying out for if you are willing to listen. If you're willing to listen. And all of this diving into the rut of prayer, it begins, of all places, with the evening prayer of Psalm 4. Which right from the get-go feels kinds of backwards, right, in our schedule. Why don't we start with the morning prayer? Why are we starting with evening? Here's why. Right from the get-go, we come to see that as we learn to engage the rut of prayer, it not only changes our lives, but it changes the way we see our days, the way we see our very existence. Every single one of us in here started our existence in the darkness of a womb helpless at the hands of others. And when we come to evening prayer, we start first and foremost with what God has done, 
not us. And this evening prayer, this evening first rhythm has its first beat. It's downbeat all the way back in the creation narrative of Genesis 1. At the dawn of time, it was evening and morning, and it was good. Evening and morning, it was good. And so as we begin our rhythms, a rhythm of rest, the rhythms of grace that channel into our lives, we first say good night to our work, good night to our worries, good night to our fears. And so we put it all in God's hands. If you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to Psalm 4. If you are using one of the community Bibles, it's pa- found on page 448. 448. And there's an interesting pr- uh, progression that happens in the midst of this prayer. In verse 1, we start with almost an anxiety and angst. Answer me, oh my God! <laughs> you know? And then by the time you get to verse 8, we see in peace I lay down and sleep. How does the psalmist get there? Or maybe more importantly, how do we get there? And it comes with understanding what is at the center of evening prayer. Evening prayer surrenders. Evening prayer surrenders. And one of the first things we surrender when we come in evening prayer are our messes. Our messes. You know, whenever I'm feeding my daughter at the dinner table, if there's a small little bit of food that falls off the spoon onto the floor, she incessantly will say, mess, 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 which is kind of cute, kind of annoying when she says it, but especially annoying when my heart says that. You see, so often when our heads hit the pillow, our hearts are just getting warmed up because the brokenness that surrounds us continues to infatuate our imaginations. And when we come in evening prayer, we actually name that brokenness and then we surrender it and hand it over to God to trust the God who will make all wrongs right in his time and in his ways. I mean, to say that life is hard is one of the most trite statements maybe in the book, (laughs) right? There are far too often moments where we're angry and there are far too often moments in life where we should be angry at injustice, at racism, at abuse, at sin, at destructive habits. But the real question comes to us as human beings as to what we're going to let that anger do to us. You see, if we never surrender our anger, if we never surrender the brokenness of the world, then that brokenness will eventually break us and embitter us and will become the cantankerous elderly person in the corner who doesn't see anything right in the world. And nobody wants to be that. And we can be that at age 22. You can be that at age 77. It doesn't matter. But anger can slowly destroy you. And what we find here in Psalm 4, verse 4, is that the psalmist guides us in evening prayer to be angry and do not sin. What an interesting juxtaposition, yeah? to be angry and do not sin because in those moments when we're angry at injustice, we also remind us that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Ultimately, justice isn't in my hands. Or in the words of theologian Eugene Peterson, what is wrong in the world is ultimately God's business. Now, That doesn't mean we don't have a part to play in making wrongs right as God's people in the daylight hours. But when evening comes, 
we come to surrender knowing that God is working when we must rest, that he's going before us when we're catching up. Otherwise, we are in a quite a pitiful state as human beings. So in evening prayer, we first surrender the mess that is around us, but then we also come and surrender the mess that is within us. You know, with all the traffic, the hustle and bustle of the workspace, the conference calls, the cries of children, the sleepless nights sometimes, there's always more going on in our hearts than we have time for in the midst of the day to deal with, to hear, to engage. And evening prayer is actually a space to be intentional and listen to what's going on in our hearts. Where suddenly before we hit the pillow, we say, okay, why did I have an argument with Kelly today? (laughs) Why can't I get this argument out of my mind? Why am I consistently trying to prove I'm right, prove I'm glorious, prove I'm brilliant, right? What am I trying to prove? Where am I finding my identity? What's broken within me? God, it's yours. God, it's yours. I'm done wrestling through this. It's yours. You're going you're gonna to do the work you need to do in my life and in the relationships I have. And tonight, I surrender it up. How much do we need to do that on a daily basis, right? It's in the words of the psalmist that we ponder in our hearts on our beds and be silent. There's a gift in being silent. When we want to come with more apologies to utter more prayers because we think we can continue to make change, instead, there's a moment in the night where we remember that God is in control and we're silent. That's a gift. That's a gift. And that comes in then proclaiming that mess that's within and without and surrendering it to him. But also in evening prayer, what we come to discover is that we not only need to surrender the mess that's within or the mess that's without, but also we need to surrender our hopes. Those dreams that keep us from dreaming, those really good ideas and strategies that won't let us turn off because they'll change the world. Listen to what the psalmist prays in verses six and seven. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Some more good. Lift, us, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, when the sun is setting and we have these deep longings for more good, and it can be for very good things. It can be for grain. It can be for wine. It can be for a potential spouse, a potential promotion, a child's education, a broken relationship that needs reconciliation, all of these things. And yet, in evening prayer, when everyone else is saying, can someone show us some more good? Our unfulfilled hopes are surrendered to the joy of God's presence with us, that he has revealed and shined his face upon us, that he has not forgotten his people, that he cares just as much about our hopes as he does our messes. And in evening prayer, we recenter. When so much of our life we're chasing after unholy obsessions, a way to prove our reputation, a way to make ourselves great, a way to be our own savior or to be seen as the savior of others. With a few authentic words of prayer before God, we come and we surrender all of that before him and we lay it down and only when we lay that down before him will we ever 
ever have the opportunity to genuinely lay down our own bodies and rest. And so receive what he offers, his peace-filled rest, rich sleep, sleep that the psalmist describes at the end of verse 8 in Psalm 4 as founded in you alone, O Lord, are my safety, my security. At the end of the day, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how the just are prospering or the unjust are prospering, regardless of where my plans land, it is in you and you alone I can find rest. Evening prayer surrenders. When's the last time you slept like that? Was your last night's sleep a wrestling match or a surrender? It sounds really good, doesn't it? And it only gets better. Another stupid salesman line. Sorry, I won't do that too much longer. After evening prayer surrenders, we also find that morning prayer anticipates. Morning prayer anticipates. Because every morning we're all anticipating something. When our alarm clock goes off, we're anticipating someone or something to show up. You see, what you worry about when you go to sleep, what you think about the moment you wake up, oftentimes are the things that we worship. And more often than not, it's our idols that tuck us in at night. It's our idols that greet us with smiling, deceptive faces until we dig a better rut. Look at Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Isn't that how we all start in the morning? <laughs> With some groaning? You know, ah, uh, snooze. And then so goes the day. Because seriously, every one of us is groaning for something, for someone to show up. And in morning prayer, we begun to anticipate, of all things, of all people, for God himself to show up. And maybe more specifically, his kingdom. Look at how the psalmist addresses God here in the prayer in verse 2. He doesn't call him my coffee mate, my buddy, my chum. My king and my God. All the reverence and authority and the power that is to the creator God who is sovereign over his good world. The psalmist, he actually comes with confidence, we see in this prayer, that God hears him and he will intervene in his life. How often do we wake up and go from groaning to watchfulness? looking for God to engage our world. And what on earth does that even mean? What are we looking for when we say that? Oh, I'm, I'm looking for God to intervene. What does that mean? Well, as you walk through verses 4 through 10, this particular prayer is an extended way of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A familiar line in the prayer that Jesus teaches all of his disciples to pray. God's kingdom takes on the character of him, the king, and it is unlike anything else the rest of this world has to offer. And so when we begin our morning anticipating God to bring his kingdom to bear on a broken world, we don't wake up with this naive optimism or this shocking reality that when people are going to push against God's loving advances, there are enemies to God's good desires. There are those who are prospering from the systems of brokenness in our world. But I thought God was loving. <laughs> what does this mean? Well, what we even see here in this prayer is that God's love is holy. It isn't gushy. 
God's love is holy. It isn't gushy. It's unlike our love where we get an email about an injustice somewhere. We shed a tear and then we delete it going on with the rest of our days. God's love is holy, unlike our love, where we get excited and we overpromise and therefore can't deliver, where God's love always delivers on its promises. God's love is holy, unlike our love, which far too often is extended to get something, to get acceptance, to receive love, where God gives love purely for the good of the other. And so we find that God is absolutely intolerant of anything that will destroy his good world. Like a mother who's torn apart when her child has cancer. God is not satisfied until every bit of sin is eradicated from his good world. And so we begin our day in anticipation for a good king, a just king to bring his kingdom to bear on a broken world. And you know what that does? When we come anticipating that, is it brings rest in our work, rest in our vocations. Whatever God has called you to do and gifted you and wired you to do to contribute. Are you looking for his kingdom? Are you anticipating his work in your world? Or are you anticipating the kingdom of your boss? Are you fighting for your kingdom when you're engaging your family, your friends? Well, I don't necessarily like the way I answer those questions when I'm honest with myself. (laughs) And that's why I so appreciate the psalmist here. He's someone I can relate to in his prayers because when his own brokenness is staring him back in the face, when he knows he's far too often complicit in the injustice of the world, He comes praying in verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I'll bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. You see, we need God to do more than just bring his kingdom to bear on this world. We need him to reveal his right, his righteous paths for us to follow if we have any chance of making it. And what morning prayer does is it teaches us to now anticipate his paths. Anticipate his paths. Because God's abundance, don't miss that word. We can skim over it. We can speed read past it. His abundant, steadfast, his persevering love. When we'd rather it go somewhere else, it keeps focused in on us. His persevering love to those who trust him. And we come knowing that we're prone to wander, prone to be lured by those who've taken a different path, who've sacrificed integrity to gain success. When we see the path of others who potentially have made great wealth or have gained great reputation because of the brutality treated towards others, we might be so lured to that path. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And so we come to various paths, and whoever might be successful in our day and age in the area we want to be successful, we ask God instead to be our vision, to continue to spur on our hearts towards right paths that end, as we see this prayer ends, with blessing and favor and protection. I mean, who doesn't want that? Don't we want rest 
from work when we go to sleep at night and rest in work during the day, paths that lead to blessing, paths that lead to protection and God's persistent care? Of course we do. But how do we get there? How do we learn, begin learning prayer? How do we start digging a better rut? Step one, and I'm going to sound like a coach for a second, stop making excuses. <laughs> you know, whether whatever sport you, you've played before, even if it was intramural or out in the backyard, there's always the, the teammate or the coach who pushes you past what you thought were your limitations. My legs are exhausted. No, you can do another lap. <laughs> Thanks, coach. Appreciate it. Well, seriously, stop making excuses. And I'm right there with you. I'm guilty of making excuses in my own life. And one of the biggest excuses we make is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. The reality is, though, is that we always have time for the things that we think are necessary in our lives. Something we do every evening and morning is brush our teeth. Or at least I hope so. (laughs) I see some good smiles in the room, so I think that's some good evidence of that. But we brush our teeth every evening and morning because we think that's good hygiene to care for us in the long term. Every evening, we get into our evening attire before we go to sleep and our work attire before we go into our jobs because we think that's necessary, whether we feel like it or not. It's a habit. It's a rut. We think it's necessary. And this particular rut, you're never too busy for. It's a necessary component for you to face the day. Now, another common excuse that we make is, I don't know what to say. But when has that ever stopped you from setting a coffee date with a friend? Uh, I really want to go have coffee with that person, but I'm not really sure what I'm going to say just yet. We don't do that with any other relationship. And then when we come to prayer, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. And also, because I know there's some unique nuances there, I'm going to give you some handles in here in just a little bit. And the third greatest excuse, I think, is I don't get anything out of it. I don't get anything out of it. Every relationship, there are moments when you have conversations that you don't get the warm fuzzies. An employee-employer relationship. Conversations continue as trust continues to build. Friendships. Not every time you walk away from a friendship do you feel really warm and bubbly and excited. Sometimes people confront you for your good and it feels kind of terrible. And then you say, thank you for doing that. There's moments, especially in marriage, where you're having conversations and you don't walk away with warm fuzzies because you continue the consistent communication of intimacy in building that relationship. And even with all three of these excuses, look at what is the capital letter at the beginning of each of them. I. Can you imagine any relationship that survives on that level of self-centeredness? None of them. You see, prayer is definitely a gift for us, but it's not only about us. As we engage prayer, we actually continue our commune with God and knowing his presence and experiencing his presence. And when we pray together, it also builds community with others. But all of this may have just made us feel more guilty than anything. (laughs) So how do we actually change? I do want to help there. Um, I know I want to grow there. Well, the first thing is we need to, or the second thing after stopping making excuses is we need to make prayer a habit. We need to make prayer a habit. If we want to rest, we need to dig a better rut. And once again, Charles Duhigg here talks about a keystone habit that doesn't just change a couple hours in your day, but it changes the very trajectory of your life. And one of those habits is prayer. I want you to just take an imaginative journey with me for a second and think if the one habit you fought for was evening and morning prayer. 
You're in the middle of a conversation and you know you got five minutes before you need to go to sleep. You end the conversation because you're going to fight for that habit. You feel exhausted and you're tempted to hit the snooze button again in the morning, but you say, I'm going to get up because I'm going to be committed to morning prayer. Well, here's a couple things that have the potential of trickling down. One of the things, if you're really committed to evening and morning prayer, is you're going to try to get into bed a little bit earlier. Because you want to be somewhat cogent when you pray your evening prayers, and you want to be somewhat cogent in the morning when you're praying your morning prayers before the other activities you have that are necessary for preparing for your day. Now, if you happen to go to bed a little bit earlier, there's a good chance you watched one less TV show than you normally do, which also means you snacked a little bit less. Your diet has slightly improved. Alongside of all of that, as you begin to pray down your burdens and pray up your anticipation of God working in your days, it gives you greater perspective of the issues that are going on in your life, and it can lower your blood pressure, decrease your levels of stress. And also, in the midst of all of this too, you begin to see God working in ways you hadn't because you're slowing down and you're anticipating Him working even in the ordinary ways. What that does is it brings joy and energy back into your life that you thought was forever lost because God is there and you're aware. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but I hope you caught it. (laughs) Look, that's one small example of how being committed to evening and morning prayer can actually change a whole host of broken and destructive habits in our lives. But how do we start? And I'm going to get really, really simple, almost... um, ashamedly simple, and following Charles Duhigg's wisdom here on how we form every habit. Cue, routine, reward cycle. Starting a cue, routine, reward cycle. To get very, very crass, it's the way we train dogs, <laughs> right? When we, the cue is telling a dog to sit down. The routine is the dog sits, and the reward is a treat. So that if I'm looking at my dog Lola halfway across the room and I yell, sit, She sits and she's coming to expect a reward. It's why every habit we have in our life we keep doing because we're expecting a reward in our day. Now, amidst all of that, some of us, our triggers, our cues may be the alarm in the morning. The routine, instead of prayer, may be scrolling through Facebook and checking email because we want to be in the know. We want to feel connected. We hate feeling alone. Maybe in the evening, the queue is walking in the back door. The routine is plopping down in front of the television. The reward is zoning out, so you don't have to think about everything else that happened in the day. Everything has a queue, routine, and reward in our days. Do you know what they are? Listen, if you want to be intentional about what patterns are shaping the trajectory of your life, you need to be more aware of the cues you've placed or have been placed upon you, and you need to take those back into your own hands. So for me, a small example, and I'm definitely learning to get better at this. For me, morning prayer doesn't take place right when I get out of bed. It it happens after I've gotten ready and I get up to my desk and I have my coffee and that's my cue. My routine is then pray and my reward is knowing that God is present and I'm not doing this alone. My cue, my desk, coffee, routine, morning prayer, reward, God's presence and the awareness of it. What about you? You can all do this. This afternoon, when you go home, take the intentional step of navigating what could be an evening and a morning cue for you. What could be an evening and morning cue? Now, the routine, 
this comes back to the question, what do we pray? <laughs> what do we pray? I want to challenge you in, in some way and also resource you. If Wherever you sat this morning, you received, yes, that little prayer card that has Psalm 4 on one side and Psalm 5 on the other. I want to challenge you that in the evening, read through and pray through Psalm 5 slowly in the awareness of God's presence. Let the psalmist words be your words to God. And if you do this slowly, this will take you all of some 60 seconds. (laughs) Now, in the morning, do the same with Psalm 5. Read slowly. Let the psalmist words now become your words in the presence of God. And if you do this slowly, this will take you all of 60 seconds. Why the Psalms? One, it reminds you that your faith doesn't start with you, but you're stepping into a historical trajectory where millions of people before you have prayed those same prayers and used them to guide them in forming good language and prayer. But then also, too, it takes out the fear, what am I going to say? And let those words now guide you. Also, below Psalm 4, you'll find there are four questions. If you have an extra five to ten minutes, use those to guide you in free prayer and reflection. A command that God's calling you to obey, ask him to help you obey it. A promise he's revealed to you in his word, ask him to help you trust in it. A sin that's in your life, come confessing that to him. Use this. Push the excuses aside. Navigate what are your cues and enter into the routine of prayer and the reward is God's presence and the awareness of it. I can guarantee you won't be sorry you tried it. That's my last sales mini pitch, okay? (laughs) I promise. Listen, if you want rest, dig a better rut. And the beauty is, is you're entering a rut that Jesus himself entered. Growing up in a Jewish home in the first century, he prayed evening and morning prayers. These very same prayers that we now get to pray are the prayers that Jesus himself prayed. Think about that. This was Jesus' prayer book, and we get to join him even in that. But the great caveat, the major warning, the the stop I want to put here is as soon as we start talking about doing all the things that Jesus did as we seek to follow him, we need to first and foremost remember the things that Jesus did that we can't do. The only reason we're able to dig a better rut is because Jesus first and foremost blazed the trail. We're only able to ultimately rest because of Jesus's work on our behalf. You see, if we're going to be engaging this rhythm of prayer, it must first start with the gospel. If it's ever going to transform from duty to delight, if it's going to stop being a way of avoiding judgment and begin to be a place of experiencing joy like the psalmist does, both at the end of Psalm 4 and the end of Psalm 5, we must remember the one who has died on the cross and paid our penalty, who three days later rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, And in the words of the author of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, always lives to make intercession for us. In the midst of our prayerlessness, out of the abundance of his steadfast love, Christ prays for us. No amount of prayers, no amount of prayerlessness will ever change that. What does it change? It changes how we experience joy and rest in our lives today. When we come and practice surrender in evening prayer and we come anticipating in morning prayer, we come and experience the rest of God's presence and the joy of seeing him work in our own lives and the lives of those around us. If you want rest, dig a better rut. 
Start digging today, okay? Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.